0: RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. The Trek Files, Season 2, Episode 1, New Writer's Memo, November Second, 1986.
1: Welcome to The Trek Files, a look into the archives of Roddenberry Entertainment from the personal files of Gene Roddenberry. And now your host... Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. Well, welcome Star Trek background fans, fans of all Star Trek, and of course, our Trekophiles, spelled with an F. Welcome back to Season 2. It's a whole new, bold new season of Star Trek Trek Files. Thanks for uh, getting through the hiatus time with us. We've got a great season planned. Starting off today with a wonderful little memo we found from, again, The Roots of the Roots and Origins of the Next Generation, uh, when Gene Roddenberry, Ed Milkus, Bob Justman, and David Gerald were the bare-bones think tank in November 1986. Listen to this section of a memo, and I'll be right back with this week's guest. Meanwhile, you can find this week's document, as always, at facebook.com slash Files.
0: Non student writers, i.e., fans, who want to break into Star Trek tend to do stories about themselves aboard the Enterprise. Gene calls these Mary Sue stories. And finally, the new writers who are ready to write for our show will have probably already secured representation and may not need the help. I know this sounds arrogant. But perhaps we should consider that if a new writer can't solve the problem of securing an agent and getting his manuscript to us that way, then he sure as heck can't solve the problem of writing a Star Trek script. Think of it as evolution and action. Only the strong survive and get to reproduce.
1: Yes, Trecophiles. There's some early thoughts there, even a poll of the uh, little brain trust that that are getting the next generation off the ground here in November 1986. After only meeting for a couple of weeks on the Paramount lot, some early thoughts about the future of Star Trek writing here from David Gerald himself. What did that conjure up for you? Well, today (laughs) – I was going through the files, and it conjured up several thoughts on several levels. And to kick things off here for Season two's discussion on the Trek Files is a good friend, friend of yours, and of course you know him, from Mission Log and Mission Log Live every Tuesday night, John Champion. John. Oh, Larry. (laughs) See,
0: I love a memo like this because uh, on the surface, it's not really that that big of a deal. It's not some revelation about Star Trek that, that didn't happen or anything like that. But you dig a little deeper and there's just so much to talk about here. Um, And I have to say right off the bat, he ain't wrong. I I think what, what he's saying here, he's what he's pointing out He's completely right. Yeah. Yeah. What he's pointing out here is that by, by opening the doors to anybody who wants to write for Star Trek, they run a huge, well, first of all, it's just a logistical problem. How do you actually go through all the scripts Mm -hmm. that will come in? so that 's one problem, then the other problem is what are the scripts we 're going to get
1: <laughs> you know well, and then well this is yes, and the third one is what are the legalities yeah what are the what are the what are the legal and guild ramifications of how you treat all that hmm. because what is somebody 's precious little baby becomes fodder for the divorce, yeah, right, <laughs> all the right. legal proceedings later on no, this is what I look at what 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 triggered my imagination with this one when we just encountered it, uh, I'd call this a hindsight memo Mm -hmm. because it's Mm -hmm. so cool. In 1986, who knew what was to come down the road, how how the next generation, how Star Trek in general, and how the audience and just how the lay of the land with everything Trek would evolve and considering what came to be only just a couple years later.
0: And that actually that would be one of the hallmarks of Star Trek in the 80s and 90s is that open-door policy. Mm you know that that really became a thing and and it launched
1: some careers no question about it it's uh well yes let's jump ahead folks yeah. um, what david is writing here is a very it's it's the historic view of hollywood uh and fans it's a dynamic tension you can't get anywhere <laughs> obviously without having a fan base but then again you don't want to be Drowning and flooded. When you're a popular show, the price of success can't be drowning in in uh, fan submissions for scripts. And of course, it's Star Trek. People have been wanting to write scripts and stories, and they have been for 20 years. The, the novel side with the licensed novels is mm. inundated with manuscripts. And now that here is the 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 idea that Star Trek is coming back to TV again, yeah. which yeah. is the which is the meme in the ether out there. Of course people are going to follow themselves to write, even though they don't yet know how the new characters, how the new format would lay out. Um, so it's a, it's a valid question. It's just amazing that at the very beginning, they're, they're A, they're considering it. Yeah. And and David very much has a foot in the fan world and, mm-hmm. and knows fandom and the convention scene. And, yeah, we've had 20 years of fanzines. Uh, Star Trek, you know, didn't invent the fanzine, but it sure cranked it up on the media side. Yeah, well, and interestingly, I didn't
0: know that – I I love that he references what what Gene calls the Mary Sue story. Mm -hmm. I I didn't know how old a term Mary Sue was, and I didn't realize that it has a very specific Star Trek connotation. The origin of that story uh, from Paula Smith in 1973, Mm -hmm. her story, A Trekkie's Tale, a parody – but Mary Sue is the, the youngest and brightest person ever to graduate from Starfleet Academy. A- yes. And it's the, the wish fulfillment of the fan putting themselves right. in she's, that role. She's yeah. assigned
1: to the Enterprise and some malady you know, knocks down everybody else and it's up to Lieutenant Mary Sue to save yeah, the ship. Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. So I, I, I but it was a realize. parody. Yes, What's yes. What's lost
1: over time is yes. people forgetting the original Mary Sue was a parody.
0: Right. So I, I didn't realize that. So it's interesting to see that term come up in this memo specifically specifically, you know, again, referencing mm-hmm. a Star Trek trope. Um, but I, yeah, I, I I really understand where David's coming from here with this memo, because, look, this is a conversation that we've been having ever since there were Star Trek fans, and, and really fans of any big franchise, but especially with Star Trek, where there's this huge feeling of ownership, and, and not just ownership, but involvement in the process. Mm-hmm. Um, go online today to any Star Trek forum, any place that people are talking about star trek and it 's a lot of fans saying well i 'll well, tell you what they should do. Mm-hmm. They should do this you know it 's my very specific interpretation, my very narrow interpretation of what Star Trek is and what it should be and what it has been um, and the the sort of assumption. That, as a fan, they know better than the producers or the writers or any of the uh, hundreds of other creative professionals you, who you, you see on the people Star with
1: track. the narrow brushes. I see the people with the broad brushes oh really yeah <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, the people yeah. who know all of this all the time, yeah, it always happens this way, and you know people are it's again it 's fans, it's passion, yeah. so many people trying to sell a story, trying to create a franchise would kill for that kind of for fifty years of that kind of passion, yeah. There's yeah. you know until they get it and then they, <laughs> <laughs> right right. maybe they have some regrets. But you know, any other anybody else would would die for that kind of uh, attention. But it's yeah. It's there's a yin and yang to it. And well, David
0: and, really points out a conundrum here, which has to do with a lot of creative arts professionals, writers, actors, mm-hmm. directors, whatever. The problem is you can't get the job until you have the recognition to do the job. But you don't get the recognition until you've done the job. So you can't just sort of walk into an agency and say, I'm here to write or I'm here to act or I'm here to direct or whatever the case may be. It it simply doesn't work that way. Nowadays, I I think we actually have it a little bit easier because people can can create a body of work and get Mm -hmm. it out there, create videos, get them on YouTube, create scripts, get them out there into any number of forums. But in 1986, this was a bit harder to do. You had to go
1: through a yeah. writing program. Yeah. You had to have 56 sort of, in 66, yeah, in 76, yeah. in 96, in 06. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it is a revolutionary. Yeah, time but you
0: in. had to go through a program. You had to get a, a sort of a, an advocate or a mentor of some sort to give you that push to get you in the door. Still have to have that today, but the the landscape has changed a bit, particularly now. Um, so yeah, he's he, he's pointing out what are huge problems. Yes,
1: yeah. in eighty six. I also like this little poll he re, he restates here at the beginning. He uh-huh. says, "Okay, Bob Justman suggested we keep ourselves open to new talent. Yep. Gene says that must come through appropriate channels, which is the traditional sure. people who have, as he says, evolved mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. to survive and claw their way into the system. Right. And he says, and David says he feels a special responsibility." Knowing how much new talent is out there, and yeah. from the zine world, from the from the fan writing world, but again, it's the same issues that we're facing. You know, Star Trek all along. What changed when Michael Piller's situation? Uh, this mm-hmm. is early six. Next Generation is launched. The show writing staff, uh, the, the writing staff, and the showrunners kind of morph from from a, a group to to Robert lewin to to Morris Hurley mm-hmm. and then a, a quick stint by Michael Wagner, and then late to the game, third season, poor bedraggled Michael Pillar comes in with every with writers in Revolt and a show with that got 's got a, a big fan base, but it needs to stretch its legs yeah and he 's about five weeks in and way behind, and he is desperate for stories. He commissions a look at um, – as they, he goes and looks at those Star Trek Phase II scripts from 1977 the mm-hmm. way uh, Morris Hurley had the year before. But he's looking around thinking, my God, he's not a Trek fan. He's not a, a, a veteran of the convention circuit at all. <laughs> right. He totally comes out of legitimate Hollywood through the censors and network suits route, yeah, mind you. And he says, much like Harb Bennett did when he came to Star Trek – and ask fans what shows I should I should screen. Mm-hmm. Michael's saying, why don't we put some of this fan passion? We're we are so behind the eight ball right now. Yeah. Early third season. Why don't we put some of that fan passion to work? And let's come up with some filters. All the attorneys, Yeah. <laughs> all, all the them. agents, yeah. all the professional Hollywood people said, You can't do that, it would be madness, it would be insanity, and you would have your butt sued every other week from people claiming, you know, overlapping mm-hmm. ideas. Yeah. But they came up with a way. They sat down with the release form, the storied Star Trek open submissions policy was all Michael's creation. And throughout Next Generation and DS9 and Voyager, it was in effect. Mm -hmm. They they finally ended it as things were – Michael had long left, and it was getting too problematic. People were – again, people – 15 people pitch or script the same idea. One is picked, and then – the other twelve of the thirteen people all say, "Well, you took my ID and didn't pay me for it."
0: Right. That's right. the danger. That, that's here. the biggest problem. Yeah. Even
1: when they yeah. signed that release form that supposedly waived that and and let the open policy occur to people's you, you know to some relief there. Yeah. Even then, people would come back and arbitrate, and after the three series, it, the, the powers would be decided. This is enough, and Enterprise sets sail without the open script policy. Right. So, right. But you know, it's here they are in eighty six. Talking about those issues and how to harness the passion of fandom, maybe writers on their way up. How do we help them? But again, not drive ourselves crazy.
0: I mean, obviously, they they found a happy medium because you found some really great stories and some great writers from that. You know, uh, Ronald Moore. I, I'll, I'll give a shout out to uh, well, that Matthew. was the
1: open policy, right, yes, right, right. Yes. But you know,
0: I'll give a shout out to uh, Matthew Corey. Yeah, he, he was he was a uh, high school student who was a Star Trek fan, submitted something, and then uh, suddenly it gets bought. And he's here. He is with a writing credit to his name, you know. Yeah. But, but the thing is, you ask ten fans, "What do you want to see on Star Trek?" And you get ten completely different answers. Doesn't matter. Doesn't True. matter who you ask. But, so they're putting in the right. I think they're putting in the right steps here, which is to say, okay, sure. if you're going to do this, you've got to have all these filters, all these layers to protect the show, uh, so you don't end up
1: with lawsuit after lawsuit. Um, but also make sure you're allowing the good stuff to come through. Now, the, what's funny also here is at the end when he says, let's find a way, and he agrees with Bob Justman who says, only if we can find a way to open some gates, maybe through colleges without having to be a contest. Right, right. right. Yeah, yeah. Only if it does not add to the workload of anyone in the office. yeah. Which was very prescient because as, <laughs> uh, our friend, yes, Lolita Fajo, who was a script, uh, the script coordinator for, for many years and through NextGen, DS9, and Voyager, with the open submission policy. So from 89 until the end of Voyager in 2001, they had tens of thousands of scripts. The cream of wow. the crop, the apex, uh, they had 5,000 scripts submitted the last year of Next Generation. Alone. Wow, wow. And uh, I know yeah. from um, <laughs> close quarters how many – we have pictures of boxes and boxes and box, And people would complain that it took nine months or a year to get an answer back. Well, folks, that's why. Well, yeah. yeah. That's why. Oh, right, right. And you know, it, even if – and some of those scripts were actually showed promise. I mean a script would be read. The coverage might not be shared back with the writer, but it would be read because you never know. And, you know, folks, the, they don't buy the whole script, but maybe they like the gem of the idea, mm-hmm. like Corey had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Or maybe they think there's promise there that they invite someone to come in and pitch, even if they're not an agented writer yet. Right. So you had that whole spectrum of reactions to the scripts. As far as I'm remembering, only Ron Moore's uh, The Bonding and Renea uh Offspring were the mm-hmm. only two mm-hmm. – uh, scripts bought as was. Yeah. As right. is. As is, yeah. Now, a yeah, lot yeah. of the other writers, yeah. Robert Wolf, came in, sold a story for Fistful of Datas, and then wrote a script from it. Yeah. You know, pitch story. We're invited to come in and pitch story ideas. Uh, that's how, you know, Brian Fuller and Lisa Klink, and I'm leaving people out yeah. on down the line, yeah, yeah. Uh, wound up on staff. But so it's, a, it's, it's just amazing to see this 1986 filter of how they were dealing with the issue that that all the Today, Discovery, they only get 13 slots. Yeah. yeah. There's almost that many on staff. They don't have quite the same yeah. dilemma.
0: The, this, was a, this was a bold step to, uh, to attempt to do this on the scale of a huge... Not just a, a TV show, but a TV show that is a worldwide fan phenomenon. That, right.
1: That is... Uh, yeah. When, and when you had twenty six slots staring you in the face for about a, a staff of five or six. Right,
0: right. <laughs> <laughs> folks, you can check out the full document at facebook.com
1: slash the Trek Files. Thanks, John. The Trek Files, as always, is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. Additional production by Ken Ray. All documents are available at Facebook.com slash the Trek Files. For more great podcasts, check out podcast.roddenberry.com. And for more deep diving of Star Trek behind the scenes, visit Dr. Trek and Portal 47, that's me, at LarryNemichek.com. Podcast.Roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.